0: Hey everyone, it's your host, Nick St. Fleur. So last week on Color Code, we told you about the Brookhaven Landfill. It's this monstrous beast that looms over North Bellport here on Long Island. For decades, it's been a source of great frustration for the people who live here. A local group of activists called the Brookhaven Landfill Action and Remediation Group, or BLARG, have said that the landfill is making their community sick, and they've demanded that it be closed. For that episode, we spoke with Dr. Robert Bullard, who's often been called the father of environmental justice. What struck me most about my conversation with Dr. Bullard is that he called the Brookhaven landfill a textbook case of environmental racism. What's happening in North Bellport is not an isolated incident. We see examples of this happening in black and brown communities across America. Dr. Bullard and other environmental activists have found that there are solutions to these problems. But those solutions are going to take time and a lot of work. We couldn't include all of my conversation with Dr. Bullard in last week's episode, so we wanted to share it with you right here. I guess to start us off, I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I know that some folks call you the the, the father of environmental justice. Uh, So tell us about yourself, Dr. Bullard.
1: Well, uh, my name is Dr. Robert Bullard. I am a professor of urban planning and environmental policy and director of the Bullard Center for Environmental and Climate Justice at Texas Southern University in Houston, Texas. And for the last four decades, uh, I've been uh, trying to connect the dots between uh, race and environment, health, housing, transportation, waste, energy, food, and water security. I'm a sociologist by training but I tell people I don't do uh dead white man sociology. I do what's scientifically called kick ass sociology, and again, over these decades, I've written eighteen books and uh it's eighteen books, but it's just one book uh, but don't tell anybody uh it deals with uh again connecting the dots and trying to make clear how uh uh humans are uh interact uh in the environment where we live, work, play, worship, uh, attend school, as well as the physical and natural world. That's my four decades of work uh, in a minute or so.
0: Thank you so much for that. I, I'm happy you were able to uh, summarize four decades in a minute for us. You know, I've been following your work for, for a while now, so it's really exciting for me to get the opportunity to speak with you and, and talk a little bit about those four decades. Um, so the reason I asked you on this, this podcast is... I've for about the past several months or so, I've been working on a story looking at this town called North Bellport on Long Island. Um, in particular, this 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 landfill, the uh, Brookhaven landfill. Now, some background, and i'd I'd love for you to kind of give me your reflections after i I tell you a little bit about north bellport and and the landfill. and I'd love to get your your thoughts on it. So this is happening on Long Island, where I'm from. Long Island is a highly segregated part of our country, one of the most segregated um, suburbs. And it's really been the model for the creation of suburbs. Um, North Bellport has an interesting history in that there's North Bellport, and there's a town which is predominantly black and brown, uh, black and Latino. And it's right next to a town called the village of Bellport, which is predominantly white. So North Bellport has the lowest life expectancy on Long Island at about 73 years or so. Right across the train tracks in the village of bellport, um, the life expectancy is at like 86 or so it's about 13 years higher. Um, and what's interesting about North Bellport is that it was sort of created uh, back in the nineteen uh, 50s, 1960s and such uh, it used to be a predominantly white working class neighborhood and then um, some black folks started moving in and you had real estate agents who used that kind of you know, those few cases to stir up a panic, uh, blockbusting, if you will, to kind of get the, the white folks to sell their houses for cheap. Uh, and then the neighborhood became increasingly more and more black and more and more black and Hispanic um, and Latino uh, back around the 1970s. Now, where the landfill comes into place is in 1974, the overall town was looking for a place to put their landfill. And they chose to put it in this predominantly black and brown neighborhood of North Belport. The neighborhood has been trying to fight against this landfill and fight for its closure for about 50 years at this point. And I think the timing is particularly interesting that this was put into place in 1974. And I know you'll speak a little bit to your work in 1978, 1979. Um, <laughs> so I've been speaking to activists who have been trying to close the landfill. Um, there's a school nearby... They feel as if they there have been cases of cancer um, amongst the teachers there that they uh, attribute to the landfill. There have been cases of a child who recently died also from cancer that the community thinks is related to the landfill. Um, North Bellport has the second highest uh, rate of asthma on Long Island as well. And there have been cases here and there of potential leakage and such. And what's particularly interesting about this landfill is that uh, since the 1980s, 1990s, it takes mostly incinerated ash. And that incinerated ash, I see you shaking your head already. Uh, interestingly, that incinerated ash comes from a location, um, from these incinerators across the island. But one of those incinerators is in a place called Wyandanche, predominantly black neighborhood, something like 90% black, um, which also happens to have the highest rate of asthma all on Long Island. Uh, so I'm I'm painting this picture for you here to kind of tell you a little bit about what the episode is about, what my reporting's been looking at, um, the activists as well. They're hoping the landfill will close in 2024. That's what the state, uh, that's what the local government says, but... There have been plenty of broken promises before, so they're not very hopeful that this will happen. And I'd love to kind of get your thoughts as, you know, the, the the father of environmental justice here. What are your thoughts on this situation happening in North Belport? Does this sound like a story that you've heard all too often?
1: Well, if you just uh, step back and look at uh, the picture that you painted uh, and For someone who's worked on this for four decades, probably long before you were born, uh, you have painted a textbook case of environmental racism. Uh, From the standpoint, even uh, in the suburbs, we're not talking about an inner city, you know, in the heart of the ghetto. We're talking about a suburban county. Uh, For some reason, uh, the toxic racism finds us. It finds black and brown people. And this is something that I discovered way back in 1979. And I thought it was, when I first was writing about this, I thought it was a Southern phenomenon. I thought it was something that was just uh, uh, created out of remnants of slavery and segregation and Jim Crow. But what you described is basically Jim Crow up north uh uh New York style and the this is not unique uh the 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 issues that you describe revolves around uh the the original sin of segregation and racial redlining and and sorting people into neighborhoods based on race, ethnicity and color and at the same time, denying uh, that community the same kinds of benefits and amenities and things that make a community healthy, but, but at the, on the flip side is giving uh, this black and brown community what we call in planning, a fancy name, locally unwanted land uses or Lulu's. We get the Lulu's and the, and the white community get the amenities that get the parks The green space, the walk trails, the bicycle lanes and all of those things that we know make a community healthy, resilient and 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 increase the the self-esteem of the residents and particularly children. The ultimate insult and assault is to our children, a school and children can't vote. These kids can't vote. They can't demonstrate. They can't march. They can't, you know, protest all the things. So that means that those of us who uh, see this as a justice of uh, a uh, civil rights issue uh, and an equity issue must do that. We must stand in the breach and fight for uh, not only our community, but for our children. Uh, and, and what you have said and what you have described, and you given that, that history uh, that, that has gone, it seems to has gone uninterrupted in terms of community has been protesting, fighting, to live with something that, that has harmed you physically, mentally, socially, and otherwise, from 1974, and you're expected to live with it for, uh, through 2024. These facilities have a long life expectancy, in many cases, longer than it takes to pay off a home. Uh, You know, usually a 30-year mortgage. So we're talking about something that has been uh, with a community, uh, that that living with that racism, in some cases uh, getting sick and dying, that's unfair, unjust, and it should be illegal.
0: Could you give us a bit of the, the history of the work you did in 1979, um, looking at, at uh, waste removal facilities over there in, in Houston, correct?
1: Yes, in Houston, Texas. Houston is the fourth largest city in the country. It's unique, and it, it's the only major city in the United States that doesn't have zoning. It didn't have zoning uh, back in 1979. It still doesn't have zoning. It, it has what's called unrestrained capitalism. If you have the money, you can build anything, anywhere, anytime. And and if you're black and brown, you can uh, they can put anything near you, next to you, and and the idea that that, that you y- you can't resist uh, because you are compatible. Your community is compatible with garbage. Three years out of graduate school, uh, my wife and I moved to Houston, in 1976 and 1979, uh, Linda McKeever Bullard, who uh, was my wife at the time, came home one day and said. Uh, uh, Bob. I just sued the state of Texas, the city of Houston, and Harris County, and I said, "Why?" She said, "This company wants to put this landfill in in next to this middle class black suburban neighborhood of homeowners." Now, there's something uh, that's in common. This was a sub- suburban neighborhood in Houston, not a ghetto, not a poverty pocket, but a middle class black neighborhood. There was nothing out there except trees, houses, and black people. No industry, but for some reason. The powers that be deemed that this was a compatible neighborhood uh, where it was okay to put a garbage dump. And so uh, my wife twisted my arm. I said, do you know how much work you're talking about is putting on a map, uh, plotting where all the landfills are, the waste incinerators and the solid waste sites are, um, and, and then determine who lives next door to these facilities. Now, this was 1979 before there was no Google There was no GIS, there was no mapping, there was nothing uh, digitized. It was uh, straight, uh, real research uh, with a hammer and a chisel. Ancient. And I had 10 students in my research methods class and I told my students, the students at Texas Southern University, where I am now, that we have a research project and I designed the study. And long and short, I had to, uh, we use uh, 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 base maps uh, census tract maps, uh, block groups that we had to piece together and glue together, put it on a poster board using magic markers, color coded. And what we found is that is that from the 1930s up to 1978, 100 percent of all the city owned landfills, excuse me, sanitary landfills. And we know there's nothing sanitary about a landfill. These were garbage dumps were placed in predominantly black neighborhoods. Now, when I say predominantly black, these that's like me saying my family is predominantly black. These are all black neighborhoods in Houston because Jim Crow segregation created that all black neighborhood. So five out of five of the city owned landfills, uh, six out of eight of the city owned incinerators and three out of four of the privately owned landfills were in predominantly black neighborhoods. So from the 30s up until 1978, 82 percent of all the garbage disposed in Houston, was dumped in black neighborhoods, even though blacks made up only 25% of the population of the city from that period of time, from the 30s up until 1978. Now, we went to court. We're in federal court, uh, and we lost the case. Now, we there was a tip-off that we were going to lose the case when they took this case. The first lawsuit to challenge environmental racism using civil rights law was being Versus Southwestern Waste Management Corporation, and it was filed in the federal district court here in Houston, Texas, uh, in front of the only black federal judge uh, in the in the district. When it was going and was getting ready to go to trial, they took it out of the, the the black judge and put it in the white federal judge, the senior judge, who must have been 150 years old, calling us negros. Negros, you negros over here, you negros be quiet. Now, if you don't know. Uh, down south, "nigra" is the fancy word for, for saying the N word. This is a federal judge calling us that. So we lost the case. The data was solid. I had published you know articles uh, before we were going to court. We went to The case was filed in 1979. We went to court in 1985. We lost in court. It was appealed. We lost on appeal in 1987. But it was easy to get the studies published in peer-reviewed journals Uh, scientific journals than it was to win in court. We had to prove intent. There was no way for us to prove that over this period of time that this form of and pattern of discrimination was intentional. So so the long and short is the fact that we developed the research design, my wife developed the legal theory for all of the research that had followed over these last four decades. That was the foundation research for looking at environmental uh, racism in terms of waste and race and the, the, and the form of discrimination in, in the form of why is it that certain communities get dumped on and other communities can live that life, set their garbage out on the curve, put it in a, a bin and it goes somewhere and it ends up in black and brown communities. Now that's the, the pattern that has persisted even to the day that we speak.
0: I mean, what you, what you just ended on there is so much of what I'm struggling with in this, in this episode in my reporting. You know, I've been living here, Long Island, for most of my life. And growing up, one of my chores was, you know, to collect the garbage around the house and bring it to the curb. And, you know, I, I had never really thought of where it goes after I bring it to the curb. And you know, through this research and such, through my reporting, uh, you know, I, I found out for myself it only goes about twenty minutes away from my house to North Belport. And through doing this research, doing this reporting, I'm sitting down with the community, with with the people, the activists who are actively being harmed by my trash, by my 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 consumerism habits and such. You know, knowing that my trash ends up in that landfill. Um, so it's just it's interesting to give people that 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 chance to think about what really happens to your trash after you bring it to the curb. Who Who is it harming? Um, I'd love to jump back on a, a figure you shared with us about how, you know, 82% of uh, Houston's um, garbage disposal ended up in, in black and brown neighborhoods or in predominantly black neighborhoods. Is that the kind of thing that we see across the country in terms of majority of our trash is being disposed of in black and brown neighborhoods?
1: Yes, what you what you are saying and describing, Nicholas, is that most Americans don't live near these facilities. So it's out of sight, out of mind. It goes somewhere. It doesn't go to garbage heaven. It goes generally to a black or brown poor community. And the the same in terms of household garbage, but also hazardous waste. Everything that we buy uh in, in terms of products uh in some cases uh have um ingredients that are toxic, whether it's the you know the Toothpaste tube that we buy, the plastics and the throwaways, it ends up some somewhere, and oftentimes they don't usually get sent to landfills because of the law, sanitary landfill, what they call um, subtitle D uh, sanitary landfills. They end up in hazardous waste facilities, landfills that are permitted to take toxic waste. Even the toxic waste facilities are located uh, in people are called communities. Uh, Colleagues and I did an update of the Toxic Waste and Race Study of 1987, the famous study that was done by the United Church of Christ Commission for Racial Justice, that, so, that showed that race was the most powerful predictor of where these facilities were located. We did an update in 2007, and what we found is that of those 413 hazardous waste facilities, uh, the, uh, 56% of the residents who live within a, a three-mile radius were people of color. And if you add two or more facilities, and that's the way it generally happens with industrial facilities, if you have one facility, it's easier to get two. If you have four, it's easy to get five because you already got four. And they say, well, hey, one more won't make a difference. The clustering of those hazardous waste facilities uh, uh, in terms of people who live next door and nearby, that number jumps from 56% to 69%. So almost seven out of every 10 residents who live near these Hazardous waste facilities were people of color, and we're only. And t- now we don't represent that anywhere near uh uh seventy percent. We're like forty five percent, forty six percent of the of the U.S. population today. So we are overrepresented near the garbage facilities. We're overrepresented near the hazardous waste facilities, and we're also represented overrepresented near the uh industrial facilities that that pump lots of pollution into the air, whether it's chemical plants, refineries. Uh, uh other kinds of, of facilities that are considered dangerous when they have explosions and accident. So why? Once going back to this whole idea of racial redlining, discrimination in housing, residential segregation, and the disrespect of our people, our place in our communities. And to say it's okay to grant a permit, not just one permit, but some t- cases 10, 15, Down south where I live in Texas and Louisiana, uh, in the Gulf Coast, we have communities that are inundated, surrounded by industrial facilities that are very harmful. And what shows up in a negative way, health disparities, elevated asthma, cancer rates, all kinds of illnesses. And what we have been saying is that our communities should not somehow become sacrifice zones. We have the right to breathe clean air, drink clean water, and have our kids to go outside and play on playgrounds that's safe and healthy and sanitary. i tell you another thing that this racism does. It denies us access to nature. In the United States, 74% of people of color live in what's called nature-deprived areas. Areas where there's no parks, no green space, no green canopy, which result in urban heat island. It's hotter in our neighborhoods because we don't have any damn trees. And compared to 24% I'm sorry, 23% of whites who live in nature deprived. Now, it's not just class, but it's race that's driving that, those disparities and it's showing up in terms of elevated uh, illnesses. And our communities have to fight back. Young people, students, uh, veterans like myself have been doing this for a long time. And we're making headway. In 1979, environmental justice was a footnote. Today, it's a headline. We have mobilization, um, uh, across the spectrum, across the United States, that's our movement for environmental, uh, climate, economic and racial justice. It's one movement now. And Black Lives Matter elevated it during, you know, the t- 2020 and 2021. Even doing COVID, people were saying, no, we we can't breathe because of police brutality and killing us with uh, with unarmed, but also killing us by living next door to these this pollution." That's shortening our lives. You talked about life expectancy, the disparity between census strikes and zip codes. Zip code is still the most potent factor that determines uh, life expectancy and health and well being. And you can go from one census strike, one neighborhood, uh, one, one zip code that are adjacent and find that disparity, 15 year disparity. And what we're saying, uh, people of color, We want that extra 15 years not to be somehow uh, shortchanged because we have our neighborhoods have have somehow been neglected. And it's tantamount. What I call is outdoor apartheid outdoor apartheid. That, we must resist that.
0: What, what you said about, you know, the, the, the people in these communities having to fight. Uh, one of the activists, uh, environmental activists I spoke to, her name is Monique Fitzgerald. Uh, what she said to us is, you know, growing up next to a landfill, living next to a landfill, I'm, I'm fighting for my life. I'm fighting every day. <laughs> um, uh, so talk to us a little bit more about the health impacts of living near a landfill. And then what is the, the science or the research like? making those connections? Because I know that could all get super muddied when the powers be don't want those connections to be made.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, you know, the, the fact is that there are a lot of uh, negative uh, impacts of landfills. They're economic, uh, they're, they are um, uh, visual, uh, and they are health. Uh, if we talk about what, what kinds of gases that, that come from landfills, we're talking about uh, ammonia, sulfides, you know, if you that smell that you get from it smells like uh, rotten eggs. That's the sulfides. You get the odors. Uh, you get the ammonia. You, we know what ammonia is. Uh, you, you get uh, methane. Methane is, is like natural gas. It's not natural. Uh, and you get carbon dioxide. You got, so if you've got two potent greenhouse gases in terms of carbon, uh, carbon dioxide and methane, but you also have the, the, the smells, the odors, and the fact that uh, landfills leak. There's no perfect landfill uh, in the world, and so they leak, and and the stuff that's been placed in those landfills get into the groundwater. Uh, uh, in nineteen seventy four, there was you know the e- we had the EPA, and those landfills were supposed to be lined, protecting. But in some cases, they, they leak, and there are certain this landfill probably was licensed to accept uh, household waste, uh, etc. But oftentimes, there's other waste that get into that landfill illegally and end up having a problem, et cetera. So we're talking about the potential for, for uh, leakages and the, the fact that the the emissions that come from those landfills, making people sick, uh, When if, if there's a flooding problem, I don't know the neighborhood, but in many cases, neighborhoods uh, oftentimes that have landfills, that have been discriminated against, that have been redlined, that have somehow been treated differently, oftentimes don't have the infrastructure like other neighborhoods in terms of when it rains a lot, if the streets flood, if they're open drainage or whatever, there are potential problems. And let's talk about the economic impact. Having a land, a landfill next door or nearby does not increase your property values. I don't care what anybody says. And so that means that that landfill is stealing wealth, wealth that could be generated in terms of the equity that would that would uh, appreciate your Home values, your, your 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 the investments that are made, and so it's theft of health and theft of wealth. You combine those two things, and there we know the science that there's a relationship between health and wealth. And so, if you're depressing the wealth of that community, and you're depressing the property values, and if you're somehow uh, allowing that landfill to continue to exist, as I said before, longer than the life expectancy of a of a mortgage, which is usually 30 years, you're talking about stealing wealth, stealing health, and stealing the vitality of that neighborhood. And if it's nearby a school, you're robbing that school. You're robbing that school, the children of their self-respect, of, their, of how they feel about themselves, in terms of their community, their school is compatible with garbage. So we're talking about not just physical health, we're talking about mental health. So we're talking about something that is not a nicety. it is not an amenity it is not something that you want to brag about and say yes my community is hosting this facility no it is a burden that a burden uh, that oftentimes uh this community has uh has lived with this burden far too long far too long
0: what you were saying about wealth the money robbing of wealth and such you know, we looked at the, the budget for the town of Brookhaven, which chose where to put this, 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 this landfill. And when you look at the budget, what's interesting is that something about like 50 to almost 60 percent of the money that the town is bringing in comes from fees associated to the landfill because, you know, they're taking the trash from everywhere. So it was something like between 55 and like 60 million a year that they're taking in from that they're that they're making from this. Um, So it's almost like, well, where is the incentive to shut this down? Where is the incentive to really figure out if there are any uh, negative health impacts in the surrounding community, in the school? Um, You know, there's been calls to close the school down. And as the activists have said to us, or to move the school, they said, you know, if if the town admits that there's an issue with the school, that it needs to be closed down, then that's them admitting that there's an issue with the landfill and the surprise in the surrounding community. So they don't want to open up that bag of that can of worms.
1: Yes. Yeah. No. You hit the nail on the head. What you have is an economic generator, where the costs are localized, and the benefits are more dispersed. In terms of, and so there's no incentive to close the landfill because it's a money maker. But at the same time, money made for whom? Who's bearing the burden? Who's have to who? Which population basically will 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 suffer the greatest harm? by this economic generator but at the same time the as i said before the 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 benefits are not uh, being accrued to the community at the level that's commensurate with the level of harm that they're being uh, being exacted upon them so that's the imbalance that's always that's always how environmental injustice and environmental racism operates and that the communities that that are bearing the burden and the most harm are receiving fewer benefits from it. That's the same thing in terms of if you elevate this one example um, to the global and talk about climate change, the communities that have contributed to the problem least suffer the pain and hurt first, worst and longest. That's the global, but when you zero down uh, to the community level, that same paradigm, that same uh, conflict in terms of that paradox the community is generating uh, less garbage. And there's a direct, here, here's how the garbage um, uh, paradigm works. There's a direct uh, relationship uh, in terms of per capita uh, income and waste generation. Rich people produce more, more waste, more garbage, more stuff per capita than poor people. But at the same time. There's an inverse relationship, but rich people are less likely to live near. They live further away from where the waste is going. This is not rocket science. It's more political science. And so what we have to say is that since everybody, produce, uh, everybody produces waste, even poor people, but the level of waste that they produce, poor people are not throwing away a whole lot of stuff. And and if you, uh, if you translate that using a racial lens, people of color produce Less waste than 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 white people, and as a matter of fact, new studies are showing that that people of color are basically suffering from breathing in air that's been polluted by white people, whereas white people breathe breathing cleaner air than than the amount of pollution that they that they generate. So the same thing applies to waste. So we have to attack this problem from the standpoint of use that equity lens, use our science, use our data, use our facts to show that the burden that's being borne by this community in terms of pollution, in terms of, of, of the negative impacts of the facility uh, and the waste that's being generated, that there's an imbalance. The, the the harms are being transfer, transferred artificially to a population that's not even generating waste. The waste is coming in from a regional standpoint and the benefits that's accrued to the region is that they don't have to live next to this facility. They don't have to wake up 24 seven, uh, and say, I live with a the landfill. They, they only have to think about it two days a week when they're do what they got to do with their waste and whatever. That's the injustice that this imbalance creates. We call that environmental racism, plain and simple. Don't dress it up. This is environmental racism, uh, in a can.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, entirely. And I I definitely want to get to like solutions and such, see what potential solutions, there, there are solutions you've come across. But before I ask that question, I'd love to ask you, in these cases, in these typical cases, what tends to be the, the playbook of the local government or, or, or folks who, who don't want to, you know, admit that this landfill is a problem. Um, as I mentioned, in this particular case, these environmental activists um, who have a group called BLARG, um, the Brookhaven Landfill um, uh, Remediation Group, um, they are looking to meet with the local government here and they haven't had they haven't had a meeting <laughs> the, the government won't sit with them won't kind of have that one-on-one you know they have to go to town hall meetings to voice their grievances um you know, the government has said that they've done a couple studies, but, you know, the activists are kind of skeptical of those studies. They, you know, they do air quality st- studies on some of the few days when the air seems clear, as opposed to the days when, you know, the waft uh, of the landfill, like, and uh, um, tombs the school kind of thing. And they say, oh, we didn't find anything. Or they'll say like, oh, there is elevated cancer, but it's a type of cancer that, you know, isn't related to the environmental uh, or environmental factors and such. So so map out to me, what is the playbook here? maybe we might see some similarities between what you've seen happens and what is happening in the town of Brookhaven and happening in, 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 in North Belport.
1: Well, what you find is that uh, when you look at the playbook is oftentimes the official will say that are currently in those positions of power and and have the authority to uh, act will say, uh, well, this facility was cited in 1974. I wasn't there in nineteen seventy four uh it was it was a decision that was made by others and and since that were the case uh we're not racist and and we didn't pick the site and and uh, all we're doing now is managing and that uh it, it, what they're saying is our hands are clean, and that that was done uh, we didn't own any slaves uh that just happened uh, right now and and so what they're doing is is uh disaggregating their political decision-making from the operation of those of that landfill and, the, and the, the disparate impact that that landfill is having on this black and brown community, as opposed to the, the, the disproportionate positive resource impact in terms of where the money is going. If you understand what I'm saying, they do not want to uh, make a decision that would say that we have, we know that there are problems in terms of where the facility is located, uh and the fact that that it it's it's where it is uh through no fault of our own, but we didn't do it. But but right now uh we have it, it it generates funds, and that uh if we had to vote on it, uh we would still have to vote uh that to keep it because that's an economic generator. And uh, and since we probably don't have anything to replace, uh, fifty million dollars or sixty million dollars, uh, then for the time being we have to, uh, keep this in place, and that the fuel will have to, uh, bite the bullet, and 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 somehow, um, uh, suck it in, and what we call it is almost like you have to, uh, you you have to trade off your health, your community and 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 your children for the benefit of the commons for the benefit of the whole a nice thing said is that your community has to be sacrificed and and what we call that is a sacrifice zone a sacrifice community and now they'll never say that but but when they when you write it down and and you start connecting the dots this community was sacrificed in 1974 and and from 1974 up until today, as we speak, uh, it is still being sacrificed. But if the community residents had a chance to negotiate back then, and even if they could negotiate now in terms of corrective measures and a post-landfill plan as to when that millions of dollars coming in, how can they divert some of that money? And we could call it reparations. We could call it whatever you want to call it. For the harm that's been done over these years, from here until, from now until that time that that facility closes, what kinds of monies can be diverted to deal with this community? And the community decides what that number is and what they should do with that money. Now, that has happened. It should be something to negotiate. But we're talking about an undemocratic process, it seems, that if you can't get a, a meeting with the Powers that be, the officials. That means you're talking about uh, you're talking about an undemocratic process, and it is more dictatorial. is more It's more likely uh the side announce defend. We call that the DAD model. So so the community has to be forceful to break to pierce that armor in terms of 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 what's happened over these years and a plan for closure. And a post closure as to what's gonna to happen to that, that facility. Because once the facility closes, it's still the problem is still not over. we talk about methane, we talk about you know ammonia, we talk about sulfides, we talk about leaks, and, and this stuff is not healthy, it's not health enhancing. So the community needs to be very active up on it. They need to have, I mean, and they're technical support uh, organizations, institutions, networks, uh, scientists that they probably need to bring in to lawyers. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, legal strike forces to brainstorm how to penetrate uh, this uh, government uh, entity that has built a wall around themselves, and 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 that money is going to the bank.
0: You, you brought up the, the R word in terms of reparations. And it's like, in order for reparations to even be on the table or a point of di- topic, like a point of discussion here, there's first need to be an acknowledgement that harm was done. And it sounds like at this point, there's not even that acknowledgement. So uh, I, I would be curious to see if it ever even gets to that point.
1: No, no, it's like, it's like an alcoholic. Uh, in order to get to solutions, you got to admit, you know, the, you know, AA, you know, you, uh, it's almost like, I got a problem. I admit my problem. And I'm an alcoholic. And, and I need, I need help. And I need expert help. And this is the step I on these steps that you're going to follow. But if you're in denial and and that is not uh, something that is an isolated incident. this country is so in denial about racism and the harm that it has done that that it's almost as if somehow why are you bringing this up? Why are you talk about reparation? We didn't do it that was done in 1974. Why are you talking about reparation for slavery? We didn't own any slaves. But at the same time, we have to challenge that, that denial uh, paradigm, that framework, and say that we, ha- we have to go on uh, with our lives today. And when they tell us, get over it, no, we're not getting over it. We're not getting over anything. Not when, not when our communities are still suffering from the residuals of centuries and, and decades so let's not uh, even talk about. Uh, let's get over it, and let's not talk about. Uh, we don't uh, that that the government, in terms of the officials that have benefited, that have racked up uh, millions and millions of dollars over these decades, and 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 where that money goes, and if probably if you look at the community's infrastructure where the landfills is located, it probably looks a a, a bit different than some of the other uh, communities. So you can take a picture. And put those pictures side by side and you can do a map and then put on those maps down. We have very sophisticated uh, mapping tools and show. And we have legal tools today that we can apply to what's going on. And so the community, I I say, uh, do never, never be timid or shy about pointing out the facts, pointing out the disparities and developing a strategy in terms of moving to solutions real solutions, not pats on the back, not not awards and plaques and that kind of thing, but real solutions, real dollars and real investments uh, that, that need to somehow go to repair the damage that's been done to those community residents.
0: So so just again, I, I know you mentioned the solutions there, but if you were to again map out, what, what are the solutions that have worked and what are the, your, I guess your advice for the solutions that these activists, that there's community members in, in North Bellport, that they should be doing, that they should be seeking out. What what are the solutions here?
1: If you can't uh, penetrate your local elected officials, go around them, get to another level, and in some cases, uh, there needs to be a media campaign, a media strategy, to to to, to really uh, lift up and broaden the 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 conversation. And and the and the idea that this is a local issue that's buried and somehow invisible. I wrote a book in Houston called "Invisible Houston." Wrote that book in 1987. It was invisible, but that, because only the neighborhoods knew what their issues were, their problems were. They, they could get no help from government. Government basically just blew them off. So I say a media strategy, and they need to have a legal strategy. They need to have a policy strategy in terms of post-closure, a, a a policy that can be put in place, a community benefits agreement that's that's enforceable and legal. We talk about uh, tra- targeting investments, resources to this community in a way that, that's going to improve the housing, the infrastructure, uh, green infrastructure, greening the school, school buses. I'm talking about big dollars going in and the federal dollars right now on the, the Justice 40 uh, initiative from the Biden administration, the bipartisan infrastructure law, that's $1.2 trillion. In New York State, ain't Mississippi, ain't Texas, There's, there are progressive you know, legislators. The Inflation Reduction Act, $60 billion, $60 billion with a B for environmental justice. Another $60 billion for uh, clean energy transition. Now, environmental justice can be defined in a lot of ways. So I would say that this community need be seeking out partners to go for some of those dollars with their elected officials that they can trust and with their community-based organizations that can receive uh, federal funds because under the Inflation Reduction Act, there's monies that can go directly to nonprofits on issues related to environment, health, housing, climate, waste. We have to think big on this even though we're talking about a local issue that, that resonates in this one area, there, there are similar circumstances outside of, of, of Long Island, outside of the state of New York, across the country where communities are dealing with the same thing. And so connecting with other communities that are dealing with these issues that have examples, that have case studies where they have one, they have projects that are on the ground, in the ground, talking about landfills. Uh, and and how communities that have 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 dealt with this, and and how they're dealing with it going forward. Not that they're looking backward. We have to look backward in the past to talk about what has been done, and and get those officials to talk about that reparation, repairing the damage, but also going forward in trying to access those new dollars to talk about how can the community improve uh, uh, the 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 physical environment and the surroundings as it relates to that landfill. And we don't have a lot of time to think about this. We, we got maybe less than 18 months now. <laughs> so it means that uh, folks need to get excited and need to get busy and they need to bring uh, uh, universities uh, that, that they know somebody, schools, students, internships, postdocs. What I'm saying is that there, there can be a plan that will have a lot of moving parts. And if the resources are not all there in the community, it is possible to reach out and bring in others to assist and support. And that's how we've been able to take environmental justice from a footnote in Houston in 1979 to this headline today where there's billions of dollars for this stuff. We didn't have a dime in Houston in 79. We didn't, we had no money, but we had heart and we had right on our sides. We lost in court, but the idea of building uh, social infrastructure and a social network for a movement uh, that's, that's research, fact-driven, solution-driven, but it's bottom-up and that the community drives this work. And as my father told me, uh, in the absence of a plan, your plan is the plan. They have to put their plan into motion and say that we're going to implement it and we're going to bring all the players that they need to the table to do it. But they are the ones in charge.
0: Well, Dr. Bullitt, thank you so much for your time is Is there anything else about this story uh north bellport the the Brookhaven landfill, and how it interacts with with environmental justice and environmental racism that you wanted to mention uh, that you wanted to say to our, our our listeners before we close here?
1: No, I'd like to say that uh, uh, it's important that that uh, we we work on these issues with the idea that we will find solutions. And I would say, don't get disheartened, disheartened and don't get discouraged and uh, stay the course. You know, the, the quest for justice uh, is, a, is, is a race, but it's no sprint. Uh, it's like a marathon relay. You run your 26.2 miles and then you pass the baton to the next generation. I think what we have to do is to keep passing that baton and keep fighting and uh, we will achieve justice in the end. I'm, I'm sure of that.
0: Dr. Bullard, uh, the, the, the father of environmental justice, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for listening and being part of our Color Code community. Our team here at STAT is Alyssa Ambrose, Hyacinth Empinado, Teresa Gaffney, and me, Nick St. Fleur. Anil Oza is our intern. Our theme music is by Brian Joel. Thanks to the Commonwealth Fund for supporting this podcast. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review and subscribe. And if you have any thoughts for us, you can reach us at at statnews.com.